The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith. Happy to be here with my co-host, Ethan Broga. This show is designed to teach you prudent investing and financial planning techniques to help you make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions to help you grow and preserve your capital. Today on the show, Ethan, I thought uh, we could just go over some questions that I've gotten from uh, various investors recently, um, making the Roth versus traditional IRA decision, some investment questions. Is emerging markets uh, a good time to be in them, or is mm-hmm. it a good time mm-hmm. to get out of emerging markets? All right. Uh, how should you approach um, the bond component of your portfolio? What areas should you be focusing on, if any, Ethan? All right. And uh, some general planning um, strategy. How would a person... Approach. Uh, say you've got money invested in your retirement, but uh, you've got some cash sitting outside of a retirement account. How 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 would you approach that right now? And how would you approach that in the context of the of the Dow um, hitting some all time highs here recently? That's how it. Would... <laughs> it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of good stuff. I'm not sure we'll have enough time for all that. I don't even know if there'll be enough time. We'll have to find out. And so, anytime throughout the week, you're welcome to call in during the show, Ethan. Right? Absolutely. Um, and but, you know, I know that's not happening in extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily not large a high amount. volume enterprise. Uh, so let's not go over that over and over again. Fair enough. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but if you do want to call in for any reason, eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero is the number you give. That's the one I like to give. And. Uh, or shoot an email, contact at empiradio.com. Mm-hmm. If you have questions or thing or comments throughout the week, though, I think you could also shoot an email to that or give us a call here at the firm, yeah. particularly if you'd like us to look at your personal situation. As we talk about some of these things today, um, I think we could help you in more detail on a one-on-one basis. And what number would, would they dial for that? I would suggest uh, dialing us here, dialing us here at the Empirical Towers at two zero six nine two three three four seven four, and I believe we also have an eight hundred number, but um, I don't remember that. One eight hundred. I believe it's one eight hundred nine two three. What's that? Four three. Yeah, one eight hundred nine two three four three zero seven. We got to write that on the big Sorry, board. It used to be on the board. I always had it memorized. Yeah, yeah. Got a little off track here. 
Um, you know, something, but as we kick all this off, Ethan, I was, um, hanging out with the kids, making them lunch, uh, last night. All right. All right. And, uh, I had, uh, uh, so you had a late lunch then, sounds like. I, I was making them lunch for school. <laughs> oh, I see. The next day. And, um, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was like, I don't know, whatever time. Okay. Uh, Kramer, Jim Kramer's on. <laughs> And uh, I had fl- was flipped through, and I said, hey, well, I'm making something. Maybe I'll try to tolerate this for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was he was talking about the market, you know, and then just went to the headline. After nine days, uh, after nine up days, now what? And so it says, not since 1996 has the Dow Jones closed higher for nine consecutive days. What on earth should you do with stocks now? Jim Cramer understands the conundrum and uh this stock and in the stock market kramer believes the best way to navigate is to dig into the thick of things um looking at long term at the long-term catalysts uh, the mad money host remains convinced fundamentals of the market remain strong and uh he goes on to say retail sales on wednesday morning were terrific and in our consumer driven economy that's a very positive also, stocks remain relatively cheap, Kramer added. The buybacks and the dividend boosts and takeovers say to me the valuations are... So, the funny thing about it, Ethan, is normally we would say, hey, the fact that we've hit new highs really doesn't mean much in terms of should I get out of the market? Right. Should I be pulling money out of my equities? Yeah, should you simply because the market did well over the last year, for example? Mm-hmm. And part of that is if you pull out, we have a little book of returns and if you um, were to pull that out and look back in different periods of bull markets, for example, you'd see there are several extended periods where you had a good year followed by an even better year, mm-hmm. um, where you can have these explosive returns following a pretty good year. It doesn't always follow a bad year. Yeah, that's right. a lot of cases it does. Sure, a lot of cases you'll have a negative year, and the very next one will be a very explosive year, like in two thousand three, mm-hmm. following two thousand. You know, the the couple the 2000, 2001, 2002 period. You had 2003 where the the global model equity models that we track uh, were up somewhere between 48, 50% that single year. Yep. And you certainly wouldn't want to miss that. But if you look at 2004 through the rest of the time, they did pretty well also till the next financial crisis. <laughs> but what makes me nervous is that I think Jim Cramer is such an idiot that it makes me nervous he's saying to stay in. It almost makes me want to get out of stocks just because he's saying to stay in them. I see. Which is gives you a little insight into, I, I know he, they were playing clips while I was watching. Eventually I had to, I had to turn it off because I get so angry. But he was screaming about, um, he was screaming, <laughs> screaming. About, you know, they were playing clips, I guess, in the past. And hating the market. Yeah. That we're puzzled. We can't seem to figure out how to deal with the new levels we've seen, including today, where the Dow gained five points, S&P edged up 0.13%, NASDAQ advanced 0.09%. I know, even I, a bull. I said I want to wait for a couple of down days after this winning streak, simply because we haven't been up nine straight days in a row for the Dow since November of nine. So anyway, wow, that's the um, real deal right there. My advice would be that you don't listen to anything he says or anyone else on TV that are making short-term market predictions but there is something to looking at um the valuations ethan and and um i had just uh pulled them up and i just accidentally closed the window that's not cool at all um well you know uh, when, I, when i hear about that that yeah. one thing confuses me 
I often hear about the the, the uh, you know the valuations on asset classes, and I know we keep track of our own uh, asset classes here. But what I I hear of outside our own company is I hear the same thing, like both sides of the coin. Hey, they're overpriced or they're underpriced or they're average. You know what I mean? At the same time, simultaneously, and, I, and that's always confusing as to why that is. I guess it's been anything else, but that's true. It's confusing. Um, I mean, if it's confusing to me, it's got to be confusing to folks who are just, you know, not necessarily in the business, right? Your average person, investor out there, hearing it, it's they're overpriced or overvalued, undervalued, so forth and so on. Yeah, and we've we've talked about. I mean, that's a pretty good chunk of time in itself talking about Agreed. the different methods of looking at that. Um, so to keep it simple for today, though, mm-hmm. I just looking at the average price-to-earnings ratio of different um, segments of the stock market, which typically takes, you know, if you're looking at a particular fund, and over here I'm using some funds mm-hmm. that are tracking certain asset classes, typically they say, hey, what were the last 12 months of earnings? And then, hey, what are the um, the current prices, an aggregate of this portfolio, right? Okay. And then that gives you an average P.E. ratio. But a lot of analysts who are trying to look forward would say, well, it, I don't really care about the last 12 months. I compare what, what the estimates of the next 12 months would be. So you'd have like a forward-looking P.E. ratio. Right. right. And then other um, academics would say, hey, you know, a last year could be a fluke anyway. What you really want to do is take an average of some longer-term period of earnings divided by the current, you know, as long as you're comparing apples to apples, that's probably step one in making sure that you're not making weird mistakes is not comparing, you know, what you think is the P, not understanding what the number is representing. Yeah, the forward or backward looking ones. Yeah, because at least then you could kind of have a time series. And that's, um, you know, if we were looking at it and saying in historically the, the S&P and using it, you know, that basic mm-hmm. method of, hey, what the last 12 months is average somewhere around 15, right? Right. Um, and if we look now and, um, and we said, well, what are we, what are we looking at? Um, you've got, uh, I'll have to pull it up. I'm sorry, Ethan, but the cheapest area right now, if I sorted a list of these, um, emerging markets are popping up, um, towards the, top of the cheap side. So emerging markets value portfolio here, we're looking at the venture funds, 10.11 is the PE ratio right now. Oh, wow. that. Um, international value, 11.26. Hmm. International small value, 12. Um, U.S. large cap value, 12.41. And I'm just starting from lowest PE and working right. up here. Uh, emerging markets, um, uh, just the general emerging markets, so uh, is trading uh, 13, right around 13 times earnings. Um, large cap international, 13.2. International small company, 13.7. And emerging market small cap, uh, which should be a pretty aggressive portfolio, 13.83. So it's interesting because the more expensive ones are in the U.S. sectors. If we look at U.S. small, 16.31, mm-hmm. Ethan. And um, I'm going to switch this over to view all funds so I can get the uh, the, the large cap U.S. I want to see what the S&P basically is is doing. But my point while I'm looking that up, Ethan, is that things aren't wildly overvalued. And uh, if this is the one place probably 
that the only time I would probably agree with anything that I've ever heard out of Jim Cramer's mouth <laughs> uh, would be that, hey, things aren't, you know, wildly overvalued would be my guess here, that I'm not too concerned about pulling out of the market as a function of, hey, the market's gotten ridiculously out of hand. Right. That there's, you know, Greenspan's irrational exuberance comments. When S&P was trading up to 40-plus times earnings, right, during the late 90s, it gotten up to a point, I think, 45, 47 times earnings. Um, and here the U.S. large company is trading now, I see it, 14.53 is right. what they have listed for the trailing 12-month earnings. So that's pretty close to the historical average. Yeah. Um, so we're not in a page where it's, we're not in a place where the market is trading at 40 times earnings and you're going, hey, is this going to continue? Are people going to continue to pay these prices? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why there's, I believe, a lot of confusion throughout all the different market cycles, Ethan, because the people get on TV and they want to talk about why someone could get on and explain why that's extremely expensive. Um, and part of that could be if you thought there weren't going to be any earnings the next few years, right? For negative earnings, then that's going to be that multiple is going to go through the roof. Yeah, it can be a problem. Um, sure. And that's the hardest thing is projecting or predicting exactly what's going to happen with earnings from year to year. So if people are getting out of equities right now um, because we're hitting new highs, it's mostly they're simply making that they're making that decision simply on the trend, the price trend. That mm-hmm. hey, we've seen. But it's not because they're fundamentally going well. This. You know, because you could have prices go up and up, and if earnings are going up and up, you're staying at the same valuation. You're not getting more expensive, right? If we went from one dollar of earnings to two, right, um, the price could literally double, and you'd be at the same exact valuation. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. You should pay double, right? If the earnings doubled for the for that, so it's not a reason to flood out of the market, right? I think we're gonna have to take a quick break, Ethan. Okay. So let's do that, and we'll come right back with Empirical Investing Radio. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, 
Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. We are back on Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. We were just talking about uh, one of her favorite persons here, Jim Cramer, and uh, his uh, most recent show that Ken uh, tuned into for just a little bit. Uh, and then uh, just talking about price-earnings ratios and the valuations of the market, given the current levels of uh, the Dow and the S&P. Mm-hmm. So things aren't... Incredibly expensive. And so what I was saying going into the break, Ethan, was mm-hmm. that people pulling out of the market are likely not pulling out um, because they think things are overly expensive. It's because they think the market in general must be overvalued because why has it gone up so much? Exactly. And they're afraid because of the last several market rebounds that it's going to go back down and they're going to feel some regret for not having done something about it, right? Yeah, I hear the, hey, we're at all-time highs. I don't think this is sustainable. Right. But in the past, we we always reach new all-time highs. That's the nature of investing. Well, that's the interesting thing about that psychology would be we last time when we hit that previous high was what? in um, Late 2007, right? Right. So that's quite a long time ago. If all we've done is recover to get back to where we were, does that mean that the market, it would be, right? It'd be different if from the high point, we went up another 50%, for example. Yeah, yeah. And you'd say, wow, nobody even earned any more money. The market just shot up because people were buying in droves, right? And now we're trading at these very high multiples. That would make me very fearful. Oddly enough, it wasn't making people feel fearful when it was actually happening. At the time, way, right. right? It was. It was, in fact, a uh, the time where perceived future risk was very low. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's just interesting how we all react. And my advice on that would be um, revisit your asset allocations, look at your retirement plan, and what you need to accomplish to get to where you want to go. Um, if you need equity returns, long-term equity returns, and you have the time frame, uh, certainly you should keep exposed um, so that you can get those premiums. Because when you're out of the market, all you're doing is lowering your equity allocation and lowering your expected future return. Right. Again, the only research I've been able to find um, that seems to have some reasonable uh, connection of returns and, and market is this connection to the valuation that the cheaper stocks get which tend to be when the news isn't that great Mm -hmm. um, the higher the expected forward return and the more expensive they get which tends to be when news is really good the lower the future expected return yeah if you can remember that you can too you don't ever need to watch another jim kramer show for the rest of your life if you can remember that all the other stuff he talks about is nonsense so everything going on with retail, so everything that's going on today will be completely irrelevant two weeks from now when 
the future events have occurred that you didn't, you couldn't predict. So we could sit here and talk about ridiculous stuff all day long, <laughs> right? And then tomorrow, all of it is useless because it's something else that we didn't even know about is affecting the general economy or the market. Right. That's the problem, and we talked about this last week with the Vanguard paper on active management. And why have these guys had such high failure rates? Because if Jim Cramer really knew what he was talking about, he wouldn't even he wouldn't do a show. He'd borrow every penny he could, use leverage and and use uh, other derivatives to to maximize or leverage his bets, and he could make far more money than he could ever make doing his shows or selling his, his books that don't help anyone. So, I mean, to be intense here, but he was screaming at other people. You know, they were playing clips where he was just yelling and saying, hey, these people don't know what they're talking about, and maybe they don't, but I don't know how he removes himself from that category. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Because, like I said, where he would put, he could put this together, make all of us multi-billionaires if if that was possible. Yeah. Um, why doesn't he just do that then and say, hey, here's the trades. I want to put them on the show. We're going to put it in. Borrow every penny you can, guys, because he knows. Yeah. But it's it's fun to hit all the buttons and do all the screaming and talk about what he thinks is going on with a certain amount of confidence. Mm-hmm. But in reality. It's it's not very – what I just said sums it up here. So would I be getting out of stocks? Well, no, not unless the, the fact that we've had these great returns has has made, put me in a position where I don't really need equity returns going forward to accomplish my goals. And I'm just psychologically – I'm not comfortable with market volatility. So as I've had better than expected returns, I'm, I'm reducing my equity exposure for that reason. But I'm doing it realizing that I am re- lowering my return. I'm not doing it thinking that I'm increasing my return. Mm-hmm. And that's the disconnect between the way I would have viewed that and I think most investors who pull out of the market think about it. They think they're increasing their return. Yeah, yeah. Because they think they will avoid the downturn and be able to buy back in at a lower point. Yeah. And that's just a very tricky and difficult thing to do. Now, within that asset allocation, it's the same principle. Would you pull out of emerging markets um, simply because the trailing returns haven't been as good as other areas of the market? Um, Would you do that even? I would not do that. And I just said that they are in the cheapest right now of the equity asset classes. So their current valuation is pretty cheap, right? Mm -hmm. Relatively speaking, so you'd be pulling out of a cheap area, and what would you be buying? You'd be buying one that was more expensive. Right. And it's more expensive because it's done a little bit better over the last uh, year yeah. or two. It's very easy. It's very easy to see, hey, what what's done well recently, looking at the last one, two, or three years, and draw investment conclusions based on that. But what really matters is the price that you pay for that, not the past returns. Mm-hmm. So this, going back to what you said, it's a matter of uh, what, what are the valuations, if, if they're very low valuations, well, that means you have a pretty high expected future return. And if they're very low, high valuations, well, you have, a, you have a lower expected future return. You know, think of it this way. I was looking at the numbers here once again. Just looking at the uh, U.S. large cap portfolio um, from DFA, the DFUSX. And back in uh, 2000, you know, right near the, the, the peak there, or uh, actually March 2000, it was trading at uh, 29.7 price to earnings ratio, Right. Mm-hmm. And the category average is around 15, as we previously discussed. So it's two, you know, double the historical average at that point. Well, what was the returns for the next several years for that asset class? Right. Well, they're very poor, right? Mm-hmm. Negative year in 2000, 
negative year in 2001, and a very negative year in 2002. Three straight negative years on the S&P. And by the end of all that, if you look at, that, look at the data, uh, you'll find that looking toward uh, the end of 2002, I actually have it right here, uh, you're looking at PEs again near, yeah, in the, in the mid-teens, basically. So it, it wasn't until the price earnings got back to somewhere close to average, historical average, that returns started to get positive again for that particular asset group. Well, so year-to-date, Ethan, you have emerging markets down about uh, a little less than 1%, where you have uh, large U.S. companies up about 96 Wow, it's a big difference. So, uh, you know, I can see where somebody looking at that, hey, what, what's happened so far this year? Right. And U.S. small value up about almost 13%. That's year. That's only in the first quarter. you got, you wow. got, I mean... Just think what we've been saying on this for the last couple of years, actually. Yeah. That hey, when returns come, sometimes they come in very small bursts, right? And the fact that nobody was, you know, last year it was international REITs that were up 30-some percent, right? And nobody even thought that last year, I'm not saying nobody, but it wasn't broadly publicized in January of 2012 that the equity markets were going to outperform. We were reading these articles yeah, yeah. from all these guys saying, you, you gotta, exactly. not only are they going to be low, but you should fire your advisors because you can't even afford. The returns are going to be so low in equity. I recall that. You can't even afford to pay anybody. And that brings up another point. I, I'm almost, I mean, I didn't believe it at the time. I still don't believe it now. But this idea about, hey, future returns are going to be extraordinarily low. Well, when are they going to start being low? You know, I mean, talking about from 2008 to now, right? Right. Each year has been pretty, pretty good. Um, you know, I one, one relatively flat year in there, but other than that, all positive for sure. Um, to get us to where we are now, uh, almost double where we were four years ago. So my advice, Ethan, and your advice, I believe, in what we are doing in practice for our clients is we have this globally diversified portfolio of equities for the equity portion of our clients' investments. Um, typically, if you take a look at how the world is made up, you'd come up with somewhere around 16%, 15% emerging markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could go through all the percentages, but I won't do that. But, hey, what you'd be doing is you're rebalancing right now. Guess what? You'd be selling to rebalance, right, whatever your frequency or methodology is. You'd be, over time, as emerging markets lag, you'd be buying emerging markets not right now. When the rest of these were people, right, are... are the fund flows may be moving out of them, but you're doing counter, and you're not doing it based on what Jim Cramer says or some some guru who is likely going to be wrong. Yeah. Um, you're doing it based on the discipline of, hey, what, what way has worked in the long run? How do you run a portfolio and keep the risk characteristics in check and keep some discipline to it where I'm not timing my portfolio based on some emotional... Um, process or some news-driven process, because I was telling you at the show, right, that yeah, I thought that would actually work, just reading articles and news. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You could read them endless, and you'll get a 100 that say one thing and a 100 that say the exact opposite. But ultimately, you're going to do what you think emotionally feels good to you. That's or right. you can abandon all of that and say, hey, I'm going to go with a more evidence-based approach. I'm going to go with approaches that I can find research that support this that have some kind of controlled process to them, mm-hmm. um, and I would would help me get through good, bad, and any kind of market with an with an expected positive return. Yeah, you know, 
I heard a, somebody famous once said, you don't have to avoid the... the was it me? <laughs> it might have been. <laughs> you don't have to avoid the downturn to get the good long-term average. Right. Actually, I think that one might have been a quote for me. But what's important now is, <laughs> thank you very much. Is that exactly true, right? The only thing that's required is to have a, a, a diversified, disciplined approach. That's what's required to get the good long-term average. And I want to point out one more thing. Just looking at last year, 2012, the uh, emerging market small caps as a group were up 24% for the year for 2012. That's right. And uh, just as comparison to the S&P, which is up 16%. So you had a big return difference over that period of time. Mm-hmm. And you know because these things are not highly exactly correlated, you know, their correlation isn't exactly one, right. you're not going to get the same return over the same period of time. Mm-hmm. That's what diversification is all about. That's the beauty of the whole thing, Ethan. So, a global equity portfolio, year-to-date's up around, uh, I don't know, let's see, 8.16%. Um, so, you're, you're in between mm-hmm. the U.S. components and the negative or flat emerging markets. Right. But you're far better off if you, if you look at the, the research approaching your portfolio that way than you are trying to time in and out of it. So, that answers one of the questions, a couple of the questions that I've gotten recently, Ethan. Okay. And uh, I think we're going to have to take a break here in a moment. But when we come back, um, I want to move into this discussion uh, about uh, the fixed income portion real quick and how, you, how, how that, these principles would apply to that as well. And then we'll try to get a little bit of the Roth versus traditional IRA discussion in. Excellent. All right. We'll take a quick break. Empirical Investing Radio. We'll be right back with Ken and Ethan. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We spend 70% of our week in the office. What is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it? The number one motivator is a positive work environment. And that's where Real Recognition Radio comes in. Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You 
are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we are back at Empirical Investing Radio. Your host, Nation. Your host, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith here just discussing. We're actually wrapping up our conversation uh, about valuations and uh, being in the stock market right now as it reaches all, all-time highs again. Um, I think we're done with that part of the show. We're going to move on to some other questions, right, Ken? Yeah, we're going to talk about the fixed income briefly right. um, and, and some things there. And... Um, so one of the questions I, I received recently was, "Hey, well, you know, you, you own these different bond funds, um, and one of the funds is yielding may more than the others. So the yield of maturity, stated yield of maturity, is greater than the other components of the bond portfolio." Sure. So this may be a question for other people out there. You know, maybe you know, it's it's on your mind. Yeah. Um, why wouldn't you just put all the money into that one particular fund then? So, for example, if you were looking uh, at something like the Vanguard tax-free intermediate versus the Vanguard uh, short-term tax-free, and then looking at the current yield on, say, something like TIPS, Treasury Inflation-Protected Securities, uh, or then you look at the the um, BRDOs, the um, the municipal uh, variable rate demand obligations, exactly, which have very very low stated rate, right? Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't you just move everything into the one of the group? Let's say that you thought, hey, these are some reasonable building blocks. You also have, say, uh, high-yield municipals, right? I'm just talking in the tax-free world here. We okay. Just for the exercise of all this. Um, and, and then you could even throw in, if you wanted to have a little extra kicker, some emerging markets debt. Um, and say you were monitoring all these things. Mm-hmm. Well, something you've pointed out repeatedly, it seems to be deep in the Me? passion of your heart there, yeah, All right. about fixed income is, wow, the, the yield at the beginning of each year doesn't seem to correlate exactly with what the return winds up being at the end of the single year. True. So tips have been yielding very low, but at the same time, in a particular year, you'll say you'll see them and you'll say, hey, wait a second, you know, if I look at tips and I look at the last... Uh, three-year average, it's been about 9.11%. Yeah. Uh, even last year, the one year ending uh, February 28th, for example, on uh, inflation-protected securities, 4.81% um, on the dimensional fund, right? I have here for 2000 and, uh, 2012, the calendar year. Okay. Uh, tips is a, the TIPS index did nine, uh, 6.98%. Okay, there you have it. So let's say you went back in time, through space and time, Ethan. Sounds pretty good so far. Tub time machine. Sounds pretty good so far. Well, let's say you did that, right? And we went back to January and you said, hey, I'm going to organize my fixed income portfolio simply by what the yields look like today. Well, you likely wouldn't have overweighted to tips because they actually have a negative yield. (laughs) Um, True enough. Right? You'd have to do the inflation adjustment. You know, it's a little bit like going, hey, let's look at 2012 once again here and say, you know what? I'm going to pick the highest returning asset class for 2012, and um, I'm only going to buy that asset class among stocks. Right? You can go through, and right, that probably would have been one of the emerging markets asset classes, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, you heard me in the previous segment say that small cap emerging markets was up 24% for 2012. 
But what have they done in your date? Well, they're actually negative, right? What have they done for you lately? <laughs> but my point is, if obviously, if you just go pick the highest yield or the highest returning asset class recently, it isn't the best approach. I think one, one of the reasons I don't like it is because it fundamentally um, uh, deviates from the, the cardinal rule, which is, hey, diversification is a good thing, right? Always got to diversify. You don't give up your diversification because last year's returns in an asset class was especially good. Doesn't make any sense. I think the same thing applies to bonds. Except we're not talking about last year's returns. We're talking about the yield of maturity. Yeah, but you're talking about hey, picking the highest yield. Why wouldn't I just buy the highest yield? Same, same, same idea though. Right. That's what I'm getting at. I can agree with that. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying is, once you've realized that, if you if you were to monitor it, it would only take you one year really of of data to go, wow, I get this a little bit better now. Because if you just always look at the yield of maturity. And then you don't go back and say, well, I picked that fund out of 10. Mm-hmm. because it, And then go, well, what did the other 10 do that had lower? You wouldn't really see this, right? But we see it because we monitor all of them all right. the time. And you see it just like the tips, like we were saying. If you if you were to look, I mean, right now, the uh, last year, I don't think the Treasury was actually that. The yield on, say, the, the five-year Treasury right now, it's about 0.85. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it was that much different back in January of 2012. I don't have it in front of me. But I think it was substantially greater, for example, right? Right. And if you look at, hey, if I bought a uh, something like a, um, uh, I'm just going to look for a treasury fund, say like a one-year fixed income. I mean, in the last year, it's done about 0.79, for example. But your, your tip, right, we didn't have, if, if the tip did 6%, Typically, the di- we didn't have just the difference of inflation wasn't doesn't explain the difference in return by itself. Right. But tips were favorable, right? Mm-hmm. They became and so there's some price appreciation there. But if you did that with each of the funds, you'd see it's you know other than the very very short term stuff, because those will tend to gravitate towards whatever the yield was, the yield of maturity was. Um, you're going to see that that it's different, especially like high yield and things like that that can be very volatile. So. The reason why I wouldn't, to answer that question, hey, why wouldn't you just move everything into the particular part of the bond portfolio that has the highest yield is that's one reason. The other reason is that certain components, when you mix them together, provide a layer or a, a, a component of protection or diversification. So if you're looking at something like, say, that intermediate municipal bond fund, mm-hmm. um, you know, it will have a certain reaction to credit. Um, ratings on the particular municipal issuers, um, and also interest rates. So if interest rates are going up at all, it will react differently than something that has a shorter-term duration, for example. Something that has an inflation protection provides a completely different element of diversification. Because if, if for some reason we did have a reasonably high inflation over the next few years, it will provide a certain level of protection that may not be in a longer-term bond fund. Mm-hmm. That's not. The variable rate uh, demand obligation, for example, what well, shows a very low stated yield, does reset. So if interest rates are changing on uh, on that or we begin to see some changes, that would, would provide a different type of protection. So you'd have inflation protection, some interest rate protection, and some uh, credit, typically credit, type of diversification. So if you're having a little bit of high-yield municipal, as an example, or on the taxable side, high-yield bonds, mm-hmm. um, the reason why you wouldn't put everything in there is, well, geez, you're taking on a lot of risk, 
And now if we're going to take that kind of risk in isolation, we might want to look at that relative to equities as an example or changing my mix. Right. Um, I could always take a 50-50 stock to bond portfolio and say, well, instead of buying um, municipal bond, or I'm sorry, high yield bonds or junk bonds to increase my return with all of my bond portfolio, I could still keep reasonably high quality bonds and maybe adjust my allocation to equities from 50 to 60% as an example. And that would be a viable way of looking at it, to a risk return parameter. Sure. But most people kind of think of investments in isolation. Yeah. And it's very rare that they open or cross into that broader view of, their, of how they're arranging their investments, Ethan. Agreed. So those are some th- reasons why, hey, when you look at mixing these bonds, it's just like when we do, like you said on the equity side, we're looking at diversification and return. And if you're willing to take certain types of risks, uh, as you go from a very conservative bond portfolio to a, a more aggressive or higher expected return, you should try to make those weights across a bond asset classes where there is a, you're expected to get that that higher return, where you get the most reward for it. Um, and so we always say, for example, you wouldn't necessarily want to buy a 30-year bond to get a little bit of extra yield. Mm-hmm. It would have to be a lot of bit of extra yield Yeah, um, for the amount of potential risk you take, sure. particularly where we are in the cycle of interest rates today. Right. Okay. I agree with that. Any other comments about that, Ethan? Mm. No, I think we're good. Okay. So once again, it's okay to have some of your bond funds that aren't the highest yielding because they're there for a certain reason for that diversification. And it's not just the yield at the time you buy them that's going to determine the return. You could buy a junk bond fund that has an 8% yield and next year have a negative return because people flooded out of junk bonds. Exactly. Right? So you just you need to be aware of that. That's why you're diversifying across, not just using the yield of maturity as your only selection tool. Right. Okay. All right. Well, next, Ethan, if we've uh, flogged that horse, I, I just wanted to bring up something that I was talking to. Uh, <laughs> nice work. I hope silver. He's on top of it. <laughs> um, that, you know, I was discussing with an individual um, investor that doesn't have an enormous amount of experience and they were saying, hey, I I don't know exactly how I should range my investments. And one of the 401k, um, I have the ability to put into a Roth. Within that 401k, I have the ability to do a traditional. Mm -hmm. How do I make that decision? Um, And this person wasn't isn't doing a uh, separate IRA account, but then has some money sitting in a taxable account, primarily in a cash-type investments or CDs, mm-hmm. some combination of that. And so, hey, what do I do with that right now? Okay. Um, and and so there's some parameters there, right? And I don't know. We've got a couple minutes. I thought I'd set this up when we come back for the last. Sure. We can talk about, well, how would you work through these, these decisions? And so... Um, you've let's say that, and I'm just going to make up a scenario here, Ethan. Okay. But um, just to keep it simple, uh, I've got the IRS tables in front of me. You're the you're the retirement expert, uh, self-proclaimed retirement <laughs> expert. <laughs> I was thinking more like uh, retirement king or like a Roth IRA king or uh, okay. the king of all emperor IRA. or supreme. I don't know. Supreme. That's master. a little extreme. I don't know, but no, I'm getting around, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we're looking, I'm looking at the 2013 tax brackets here and okay. just take an individual 
And um, yeah, when you get thirty six thousand to eighty seven thousand in that range, yep, um, you're in the twenty five percent bracket on the amounts above the thirty six. That's correct. So uh, when you get eighty seven to one eighty three, you're in the twenty eight. Yep, I see that right and here too. So keep that in mind, I guess. When we we're going to take a break, and then the the limits in terms of being able to contribute to different types of vehicles. Um, I thought maybe we could just do a quick review of that when we come back and then kind of frame this for how you would make this decision. Okay. Okay. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back in uh, a few seconds with Empirical Investing Radio. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, we're back on Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Brogo, alongside Ken Smith. Uh, this is our last segment for the day. And uh, Ken, we were talking about some um, some kind of questions you got from a person about what to do now with their investments in, in 401k and, and should I participate? Do a Roth? They're not doing not. Do yeah, that. I was just talking with somebody and they were you know knew that this is what we do and what I do, and so it was interesting when someone that you're not working with, you don't have a, a history of collecting all the data and everything, or they, people will ask questions like, hey, should I be doing the Roth in my 401k? Should I be doing the traditional? And I get very leery about giving kind of off-the-cuff recommendations. So what I try to do is to set a framework mm-hmm. of, hey, how would you make these decisions? You know, what would 
it, because I can't, with very little or no information, um, give you a, an immediate answer. And I would encourage anyone listening, if you wanted us to do this exercise with you, particularly have Ethan take a look at this. He's got various tools uh, in his treasure trove of uh, <laughs> <laughs> financial advice. But we could, we could really get into it, ask some very detailed, specific questions. But I, I'm trying to get just a general, because I... You know, when people come and ask me these questions, Ethan, I'm assuming it's not just in isolate, that people across the board have similar, they're going through similar things. And maybe they just haven't done it. Most of us research shows, we take shortcuts to making these decisions because we don't want to get a lot of emotional time and energy into something maybe we're not that worried about or, or that we don't really know about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this case, one of the questions that I was saying is, hey, do you know what you need, what balance you need? to retire um, when you get there. So do you know how much money you need to have at the date that you want to... First of all, do you know when you want to retire? And then when you do, yep. do you know how much money you need to have in a pot somewhere um, in order to be able to, to live the lifestyle you want, You know, accounting for any Social Security or pensions? Well, the person really didn't hadn't done that. So that's step one. But we're making a lot of times decisions not knowing that, and so we're trying to make the best we can to shortcut. And so... This person's solution was, well, I've been doing about half into the Roth, half into the traditional within my 401k. And I said, well, are you doing anything outside of that in terms of retirement type of accounts? No. Um, but I do have some monies in a taxable, just regular account. And what should I do with that? So that's where this all started. Okay. That's kind of the framework of it. And I'm assuming other people out there, my potential listeners, are in similar situations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe they don't all have the million or two or three million that is required to work directly with a guy like you, Ethan, because of <laughs> where you're at in, in the industry and everything. So, you know, how would you guide them through that decision? Well, we let's break it down. Which question do you want to tackle first? Well, let's tackle this Roth versus traditional in a 401k. All right. And then what to do outside of the 401k in terms of a retirement account. Let's say that this person does the analysis. I don't have enough to retire, so I need to fully fund that. Um, and I could even fund a little more for retirement beyond maxing out my 401k. Mm-hmm. How do you make that series of decisions then? Yeah, well, I, I think if you want to get it done right, of course you do, which we all want to do, um, you have to t- take a look at where you are currently in the tax bracket. So what type of deduction now are you getting by taking fully funding a tax-deferred 401k versus what do you expect to pay in the future in terms of income taxes when you take the money out of your 401k? Okay. Now, that sounds pretty simple, but in reality, it's not very easy at all to do. That's why people just kind of guess most of the time because it's kind of complicated. I don't know exactly when I'll take the money out. I don't know what my income tax bracket will be at the time. And then, by the way, I'm not taking uh, suggesting you need to guess as what tax rates are going to be in the future. I'm just simply, simply assuming, let's, assume, let's apply today's tax brackets to future income, where where we fall on that. That's the main thing, right? Um, that is difficult, though. You, know, you don't know because it depends on lots of different things. Like when you retire is one of those things. You know, uh, If you retire earlier, say 55 versus 65, um, well, I know by 65 you have some options to take Social Security and also take monies out of your IRA account penalty-free. So you may be in a higher tax bracket then than you will be at 55. Right, because you don't have options to take Social Security, nor you probably take money from your your 401k or, or IRA at that time. All right. So, in other words, if you retire at 55, you actually will be probably in a lower tax bracket than you would be at 65. 
like if you're if you're not no longer have earned income, no longer working. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, um, if that's the decision that and that's the time frame, I would say, boy, it's probably likely that you'll be in a lower tax bracket later. So it's worth taking the full deduction now. If you're retiring at say 55, mm-hmm. if you're going to be retiring at say 65, then I'd say I'm not so sure. You might be in the same tax bracket, or or maybe not at the same at, at 65 versus where you're at today. Part of that would be, hey, if I'm going to pull, if I'm going to retire at 65 and pull, all I've done is put into my IRA accounts, uh-huh. and I'm I'm going to be pulling a big chunk of my um, what I need above and beyond my Social Security check right. or other pension is going to be coming out of an account, and if all that account was free tax, yep. It's going to be coming out Bingo. and taxed, so it's going to be in like a, another paycheck that's going to get taxed. Yep. And you're saying, hey, if that number's pretty big, that yep. alone could put you into a pretty juicy tax. That's exactly correct. Okay. So in other words, it would be worth in that in that situation to fund your Roth IRA now because you'll pay more tax later. You'll mm-hmm. pay a higher rate of tax later, mm-hmm. I should say. Mm-hmm. Versus if you're going to retire earlier, say 55, then boy, it maybe it makes sense to take the deferral now because you probably can pull some money out. Vis-a-vis Roth conversions before you you are 62, you know, have to take, may qualify for Social Security, and then even later to take money out of your tax deferred IRA. So, um, I think that's kind of kind of how I look at it. Now, you actually can run the number. We can actually run the numbers. You know, I'm talking about it theoretically, but we can actually run some spreadsheet calculations to figure out and project. Well, where do you expect to fall at that time? I see. And there are handy calculators online too that say, well, if you know approximately what bracket you'll be in now versus or, or be in the future versus now you can you can run the numbers yourself on these uh, various calculators online too they can help gauge that gauge the, the decision it is not an easy answer though it takes some serious thought and uh, some serious digging into the numbers to figure it out so in this case I, I it's interesting because this person took a, sh- a, um, a shortcut that I think is logical and not bad it was hey I'm gonna put 50 yeah. 50 um, I'm just gonna split it down the middle and I kind of like the idea of having multiple buckets to draw upon. I agree with that. Um, that hey, when I get there, I could put kind of the Roth in the in the legacy or surplus bucket of my mm-hmm. retirement income needs. So I'll draw that later in life um, as it's continuing to grow, tax free, right? Right. Um, and I'll, but I could manage if I had a taxable a pre-tax and a Roth. I can kind of manage where I'm pulling my income around, what my ta- what the tax brackets do look like. And what my income looks like at that point in time and make some of these decisions. Even like you said, converting, it might be more advantageous to get the tax deduction today yep. and then convert that money later when you're in a zero or low tax bracket, particularly if you, like you said, you retire at 55. Yep. You're not even getting any Social Security or taxable income. Right. Um, under the current way rules, right? You can do that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think if you absent the absent a thorough analysis to and really dig into it and understand and know precisely when you expect to retire precisely the fifty fifty approach frankly in my view is not a bad idea yeah uh, absent the third further in depth analysis now setting up a separate account um, what you do there it, it, with the last couple of minutes is important I think to realize that one of the reasons I like the Roth for those separate accounts is because. Um, if you are participating in a 401k, the ability to contribute on a pre-tax basis into an individual account is limited because you're, you start to get a phase-out on your AGI. Um, so if you're single, for example, um, once your AGI is above 59, you can't do it, uh, I think is what the rule is on that. Um, you can't get the, the deduction. Mm-hmm. So it, it's... Um, 
it's an interesting thing where if you had monies that you're saying, hey, I'm putting 17500 into a 401k, that seems like a pretty good chunk of money. Yep. Um, you could put in the Roth and still have the ability to pull those contributions out tax-free if you needed to prior. That's correct. To, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but if you do keep it in there, you've got another, you've got part of your tax-free bucket. Yes. Uh, I would just real quick say that's exactly right. I think setting your future plans, knowing that we don't know the future exactly, but in a way that gives you the most options is a, is a, is a good thing to do. So to have buckets in a tax-free, tax-deferred, and also taxable accounts make good sense. Well, that's all the time we have, Ethan. I did want to talk about other stuff, but we'll get to it next week on this topic. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 